0: Hello, I'm Julie Bindle, I'm a regular contributor to Unheard, and I'm also a long-time campaigner to end male violence and a staunch critic of extreme transgender ideology and I'm here today talking to Kathleen Stock. Kathleen as you will know is a former professor of philosophy of 18 years at Sussex University and you've recently decided to resign, Kathleen. And I know that the mainstream media has been full of this since it blew up. But tell us
1: what happened. Um, so about a month ago, um, I went to work and as normal. And the first day I saw stickers all over my building um, in the loo. Uh, that's where I first saw them I was talking about. Uh, the transphobic shit that comes out Kathleen Stock's mouth they were plastered all over this loo that I use obviously that was quite um, distressing Uh, but anyway the next day it escalated and I went in again I was going on the train because there was a petrol shortage so I couldn't drive so I was going through this tunnel where everyone goes through if you get the train or the bus into campus and basically all these posters all the way along the length of the the tunnel had my name on them, which obviously catches your eye. Uh, and it was fire, Kathleen Stock. Kathleen Stock's a transphobe. We're not paying our fees for transphobia of Kathleen Stock, etc., etc. So I kind of stopped dead. I kind of tried to imagine going to teach my class on radical feminism as it happens <laughs> uh, that day, and then coming back up that tunnel and thought, no, I'm not doing that. So ran back to the station, got the train home, tried to teach a class on Zoom, completely failed, um, burst into tears and my dear students, said I must be having a tough day and they'd let me off. And uh, and then it escalated from there. So as probably people know by now, it was the beginning of a campaign um, to inti- basically to intimidate me out of my job.
0: That must have been terrible
1: when you arrived
0: on campus and saw your name and were they setting off smoke flares or well
1: i didn't i didn't see i mean they were setting off flares um i didn't actually see that bit um that but what they did was because i was busy running off to the train station i believe but what they did was um took a picture of that kind of balaclava man all in black looking dressed like antifa basically i think that's the imagery is it's, it's called anti-turf and i suppose it's supposed to be like antifa um, they had actual balaclavas on. Yeah, yeah, they were all, like, masked. Some of them said it was for their own protection from me, obviously. Um, but but the, the imagery was obviously intimidating, holding a massive banner saying stock out, setting off pink and blue flares because um, those are the trans colours. Oh and, and then at the actual open day, I mean, poor... You know, there was lots of parents bringing applicants there, having to pick their way through, like about a hundred masked people holding these banners saying stock out, quit stocks, again graffitiing, flares going off, uh having a whale of a time, no doubt. Um so yeah, that it was it's pretty extreme. Well, I hope those parents took their daughters and
0: turned around and well, back in the car. I don't
1: know. I mean, there is lot. There are lots of good academics and departments still at Sussex, but it's undoubtedly not a good look for them.
0: So let's go back to where this all started. I first heard your name in relation to this issue, probably about three or four years ago. You started writing mm-hmm. um, quite critically about the extreme transgender ideology and mm-hmm. self-identification, the move to introduce self-identification, and that's where it all began. I mean, presumably, it then changed forever, but escalated to the point of where we are now.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is uh, what we see now is is a culmination of something that started back then, because I was um, self publishing these little blog posts initially anyway, uh, on why academia seemed to fail to represent a, a view that was critical of Uh, self-ID policies and gender identity theory and why it wasn't attending to the obvious consequences for women. If you're going to re-describe the category of women to include males, then obviously there are going to be massive um, social and legal consequences. But yet it seemed like there was a desert in terms of any kind of worries about this or criticism of this. On the other hand, there were plenty of academics who were uh, cheerleading self-ID and very ostentatiously kind of moralising about it and talking about turfs and transphobia. So I thought that point of view should be represented. I'm a philosopher, so I started writing these little blog posts and immediately drew attention, the attention of uh, aforementioned academics and others who really didn't want me to be saying any of that. Well, <laughs> tell me why
0: you care, why you decided to involve yourself at all in this debate.
1: Um, Yeah, I've asked myself that. I mean, I care because it's... I I care on a number of levels. It's egregiously um, false gender identity theory. It's terrible philosophy. I cannot emphasise it (laughs) enough. its It sits on this bed of pseudo-philosophy coming out of post-structuralism. It's a bad interpretation of post-structuralism. I mean, it's just... On every level, it's just... um, It would fail a first-year essay... Mm -hmm. And there's huge logical gaps in it. So just as a, a philosopher who cares about logic and truth at a basic level, I couldn't believe that there are all these academics just waving it through. Um, do you but also, do it doing the whole trans women are women and there's no difference? Yeah, I mean, yeah. How, how can identity claims, like psychological identity claims, define material categories? Or how could it be true, that, alternatively, that psychological identity claims... Mean that we should just ignore material categories oh. and pretend they don't exist when they clearly have all these impacts in medicine and support and science and education and everywhere you want to look so that offended me but then i'm also a lesbian i'm also a feminist as far as i knew i would kind of assumed that academic feminists were just covering <laughs> my my mistake mm-hmm. but we're covering women women and girls rights and i didn't need to get involved in that I started to see that they were not only not covering it, they were actively undermining women's rights in the name of feminism. And there was all these knock-on consequences for lesbians as well. So on on all of those three levels, it really annoyed uh, the fuck out of me. Well, I want to name names here.
0: And you know, you're a very fair uh, person. You're a consummate professional. And you know, I think that you've always played very nicely Mm -hmm. despite what they've done to you, which we're going to get onto in a minute and the effects on you and the actions of your union in particular, or your former union. Mm. But I've personally seen on Twitter and also on blog posts and the like, academics who, of course, should know better, some in your institution, some like Sally Hines, outside of your institution, Mm -hmm. who have said the most appalling things about you misrepresented you, called you a bigot, Mm -hmm. called you a transphobe Mm -hmm. and presented you. I mean, we know each other. uh, Presented you as the opposite of what you actually are. Tell me how this has happened. Because we, we hear a lot about the students, rightly so, because they are responsible for their actions. But I want to focus more, I think, on the academics, the paid members of staff who seem to have enabled this. Yeah.
1: Well, that's as it should be, because I think that students are taking a cue from their role models, the adults around them, and they're all in their own little bubbles. I mean, I don't think they've actually read what I think. They haven't read my book. But um, yeah, there's a lot of enabling, well, not even just enabling, inciting individuals in this story. Um, As soon as I arrived, I was obviously, I I deduce a massive threat to them. So sometimes I say it's not just a turf war with an E, but it's a turf war with a U, because if I'm right, then they have built their careers on um, sand. And moreover, if I'm right, they are responsible for for some pretty um, serious, I mean, not directly responsible, but they have contributed to an environment in which some, you know, pretty terrible things are happening to, for instance, children in gender identity clinics. So... Um, I can see why they had a vested vested interest in shutting me down. And my God, they went for it and they still do. So it's I realised pretty early on, it's just shame all the way down. They just want yeah. to, you, you're stupid, you haven't read the right books, you're evil. Everything you do is the worst mm. possible interpretation of it. Um, they're mocking, they're ridiculing, they'll just chuck everything. And these are like, some of these are academics paid, Ooh. you know. So we've moved very far away from the the stereotype of the responsible truth seeker is just naked self-interest now. I was really shocked
0: to see a former professor at the university, Alison Phipps, who has since left and pretty much suggested that she was leaving Mm -hmm. because of you. And Mm -hmm. I know that this term institutionalised transphobia has been used by your former union, which is highly disgraceful, Mm -hmm. which we'll move on to. But how on earth is it that individuals who claim to be feminists such Mm. as Phipps and Hines and others can do this to a colleague to another woman knowing the consequences they have to have thought about what this would do and surely in my view they had an end goal I mean I remember the scenario where you were due to give a talk and they couldn't get that cancelled, so they decided to do some
1: shadow event. Tell us about that. Well, that was some graduate students. So I was due to give a departmental talk at Sussex, which we all do from time to time to our department and to graduate students and undergraduates and colleagues. And I was due to um, speak on a piece of research I'd done that wasn't directly to do with anything to do with trans stuff. Um, So some graduate students in philosophy. I I think actually a small number, although they always talk for the group. I had some other graduate students afterwards saying, well they don't talk for us. But um they put out this advert that they were going to have a rival event at the same time on Zoom. It was called Philosophy and Anti-Trans Thought. Uh, they invited this this person who's basically a Twitter troll as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> just basically defaming me hmm. uh and misrepresenting me and all the rest of it. So they invited her, she's not trans. They invited her to come and give a talk on me, (laughs) um, at the same time as my talk, which was supposed to take place, and about, as far as I'm told, about 40 of my colleagues went, including some professors, including people you might have just mentioned, Um, and it was just a kind of, basically like a struggle session, as far as I can see from the Cultural Revolution, you know, I mean, basically, the aim was not to really get to grips with what I actually say, Um, it was to... Present ad hominems and guilt by association, and the connections between uh, the alleged connections between my views and anti-Semitism, and just these wild. Which is a really common link that they're trying to make, isn't it? Racism and anti-Semitism. Well, they'll do anything. They'll say absolutely anything. It's just childish as anything, you know. I mean, yeah. So once I retweeted something that told a, a. big picture story about funding of trans activism Mm -hmm. in the states and it mentioned George Soros, so I'm an anti-Semite. You know, it mentioned lots of other people who weren't Jewish, but that doesn't matter. (laughs) The logic here is not particularly sophisticated.
0: Well, and it would also be akin to to, um, saying that Jeffrey Epstein did some pretty bad things. And to say that that was anti-Semitic to yeah, say well, so. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. It's nobody, that logical.
1: Nobody grown up falls for this. But if, you're, if your aim is, if you're already, like, invested in seeing me as some kind of witch figure, mm-hmm. then you're just going to look around and cherry-pick every little thing you yes. can to add to the picture that you are creating for students. Which, which takes us to, to kind of the, the bigger picture, if we can
0: for a moment, because you said something really important there about how when you were going to do a dep- departmental talk, Mm -hmm. not about the trans issue, of course, but that the response was to horrendously bully you and discredit you. And my experience has been that when I go to universities and elsewhere to do talks on male violence, not about the trans issue at all, Mm -hmm. but on rape, domestic violence, femicide, sexual abuse and the like, that they will desperately try to get me Mm deplatformed and discredited. So that shows this isn't about the rights of trans people, is it? It's about destroying individual women who are feminist. Yeah. And I think it's rooted entirely in misogyny.
1: Well, I mean, I don't... Misogyny... I mean, it's not straightforwardly misogynistic, but I think... um, I want to give you an example of what you just said in my case. So I wrote a review, a philosophical review, for this um, totally erudite academic publication called The Notre Dame philosophical reviews it's a journal of basically all it is is reviews read by about 12 academics yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) it's very big in academic philosophy no one else has ever heard of it but i was asked to write a review and i wrote a review of this book by siren Kader that was on um decolonization and feminism basically um didn't touch on trans issues at all and i wrote a pretty sympathetic review with some criticisms um this big shot uh academic feminist philosopher called Sally Haslanger, who's like really, again, no one outside of philosophy will ever heard of her, but she's very influential in my field, wrote to the editorial board, every single member of the editorial board of the Notre Dame Philosophical Review and said that I should never have been asked to do that review. And what could we do to stop things like this happening in future? So that just shows it's not, so is that misogyny? Well, she would certainly deny it because she's dedicated her entire life (laughs) to, to weeding out misogyny, but they seem very selective to me in the way that they apply their principles.
0: Well, and this is about trying to destroy the whole person. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, to hold you up as a warning, in the way that I've been held up as a warning Mm -hmm. to other feminists and journalists, don't do this. And and I think that that is what's shifting, that actually more of us are saying, no, we will speak out and we will continue to speak out.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to stop. And actually, in in leaving Sussex, I've actually become um, much more, even more able to speak out, mm. and now I've got a bigger platform. So, jokes on you. <laughs> if you actually were to say everything
0: that you believe about this issue, it still wouldn't be anti-trans. It still wouldn't
1: be transphobic. No, I mean, actually, I want to be clarified that I don't have sort of other whole, you know, set of more extreme views right. that I've been keeping in the wings for this moment. I just mean. That, for instance, I can now criticize Sally Haslanger out loud, which I didn't have never done before, because Mm -hmm. I have no, you know, I don't actually expect to go back into the philosophy Mm -hmm. profession, and I have no reason uh, to protect anybody Mm -hmm. in there anymore or to worry about the possible consequences for me. So, but no, my views are the same as they always were about the substantive issues. They are the views in my book, um, and they're not. I would be, I mean, I'm always open to changing my mind because I'm a philosopher, but I'd be astonished if I ever thought differently about those things and I absolutely believe that trans people should be protected in law so I'm never going to waver from that either I just disagree about the laws that should be used Mm -hmm. with you know. So what about those I mean I
0: I know you this must happen to you all the time because it's happened to me and it's happened to others where you get emails Mm -hmm. and messages from colleagues or from friends even who say I agree with every word you're saying Mm -hmm. but of course I can't speak up yeah. Well, I know that there are some people, and we really need to focus more on the men who don't speak up as well here. But mm-hmm. I know there are some people that actually can't take that risk right now. The punishment is severe if you've got children to feed, and you would be unemployable. It, it, that's that's an issue. Although it, it costs us all. But what what do we need to happen to get the decent liberals?
1: Mm-hmm
0: not even the feminists, but the decent liberals, to actually speak up and say, this is wrong. Now, just to clarify, one of the things that offended me the most mm-hmm. with, with liberals, either speaking out or not speaking out, was Mary Beard, who saw what was happening to me, the bullying and the harassment, and said, yes, Julie Bindle is transphobic, but she has the right to be transphobic. I don't want the right to be a bit of to be transphobic. This isn't about blanket-free speech. It's
1: infuriating with the way that gets set up. I mean, I don't know of that case, but actually it just drives me nuts. So that's actually how it gets presented in universities Mm. too. It's like, well, we've got to do this complex balance between the academic freedom of Kathleen Stock to say these, you know, implicitly they're implying terrible things, and then we also have to protect our vulnerable trans students as if these two things are, in well, I mean, put like that, they do look in tension, but in fact, I'm not saying terrible things and I'm tired of being lumped with Holocaust deniers right. and God knows what. Um, you know, I'm not actually a moderate. I'm not even a free speech absolutist as it happens. Uh, this is preposterous framing and again, entirely set up by our enemies mm. to mean that we can't win, because all we're doing is insisting on basic obvious facts of biology mm-hmm. and their social significance, and the categories can't change because of identity claims. Nearly 99% of the planet agrees with us. So yeah, I, it annoys me. And what I found is that um, the most I can get out of people is a kind of tentative, well, we absolutely support Kathleen Stock's right to say what she thinks, but they, you know, they won't say, and yeah, and of course we agree with her because it's bloody obvious. Right, so we've ended up in a situation of flat earthers, basically. Because of this sort of gap, this, you know, the, the gap, the silence around it, yes, means that small um, groups of very vocal, confident, um, aggressive people uh, can fill that gap. So just in case the viewers
0: didn't realise we're both lesbians, Um, And, obviously, there is an issue, isn't there, about anti-lesbian discrimination as well as sexism that we face. And also, I suppose, women-only spaces Mm -hmm. its very important to us. Yeah. Tell me about
1: how this affects young lesbians, in your view. Well, I think they're at the sharp end because because a large number of trans women are heterosexual, right? That's something that I don't even know that the general public even fully understand, but they are. so that means they are male, males, because they're trans women, so they're males, and they are sexually attracted to females. And um, that means that when they start to self-identify as women, um, some of them, not all of them, but some of them also self-identify as lesbians. And, you know, again, crazy. it always seems so crazy, but it's true, Organisations like Stonewall that were designed to fight for same-sex attracted people have now adapted their terminology to define lesbian and and gay men in terms of gender identity and inner feelings. So according to them, a trans woman can be a lesbian. And um, a lesbian can be attracted constantly to trans women. So in other words, you know, to males. Mm. Um, Which messes up the categories, you know, irrevocably. Um, And the problem is young lesbians who are just getting to grips with their own sexuality um, are in queer spaces um, and queer communities where there are some, not all, but some trans women who are insisting, well, I'm a lesbian like you are. You can't exclude me, you know, a priori from your dating preferences because that's transphobic. And Nancy Kelly said it herself, as in... She's the director of Stonewall, yeah. yeah she said, um, you know, excluding a whole group of people from your dating preferences is a bit like being a racist and excluding a whole lot of people on the basis of race from your dating preferences. And as someone on Twitter Twitter wittily pointed out, but, Nancy, Stonewall was set up to, to to look after people who exclude a whole lot of people from their dating preferences. You know, I mean, it's basically... Sexual orientation is based on sex, biological sex, same-sex attraction or opposite sex attraction. You can't replace it with gender identity, and havoc will follow if you do. And then of course the other bit of havoc is the children. And that's the bit that's just mind-blowing that, you know, children who are finding out that they are same-sex attracted are being are thinking, sometimes on their own and sometimes with encouragement from adults, that they must be the opposite sex. Mm. You know, so Beth, and if they've got homophobic parents, that's probably a more tempting yes. thought. You know, so uh, a gay boy who is attracted to boys, it might be much more convenient for everyone if that's a girl. And that to me is conversion therapy. Well, it's it's not right, whatever it is. I mean, it's basically um, if you can't allow therapists to explore with children and adults their feelings of gender identity, which might obviously change over time and, and for many people do, then the cost is that they will quite likely end up irrevocably changing their bodies in ways that they won't accept afterwards and it will make a huge difference to their lives and their fertility um, and possibly their bone density and their kidney function and their cognitive function. I mean, you can't fuck about with this stuff. <laughs>
0: and that was one of the drivers for you yes. writing your book, wasn't it? Well.
1: Yeah, because my book's about the sort of the confusion at the heart of all this, which is the idea that identity, psychological identity Mm. can change your category. And that's going to have, of course, because it's so sort of sex is so embedded in all these areas, sexual orientation, women's rights, uh, medicine, sport, uh, violence statistics. You know, it's embedded in sexual violence statistics because males on average are stronger, stronger and bigger than women. And that's a a biological feature of of them. So because it's embedded in all these areas and because gender identity ideology has pretensions to change the categories, there's just effects, you know, bad effects in all these areas. So the book tries to cover a lot of it. Give us your book title. Material Girls, Why Reality Matters for Feminism. And it's doing well, isn't it? It's doing quite well, yes. (laughs) I don't know fourth reprint or something well i highly recommend it thank you
0: yes where where does stonewall fit within this context
1: stonewall are responsible for so much of it because they were you know although obviously i believe that stonewall started very well and achieved many good things and i'm actually quite good friends with simon fanshawe who was one of the founders Mm. but you know in the last what six years um their business model has been basically a very narrow conception of what they would call trans rights. I would say these aren't rights, and they don't benefit trans people. But because they're all already embedded in all these national institutions, government departments, the CPS, the EHRC, all of our universities, nearly um, schools, local authorities—you right. name it—Stonewall Diversity Champion already there. I've seen FOIs. Um, you can go, viewers can go and look, like because they, there's been a project of um, legal feminist. The, the group Legal Feminist to do FOIs and all these uh, institutions that have had relationships with Stonewall. And you can see that basically being in one of their schemes means that you're getting a constant kind of um, stream of instructions. Mm. Like, lo- we would really appreciate it if you'd put out a tweet lobbying for this project, which is usually, or was, or used to be anyway, around self-ID mm. or... You know, hashtag no debate, hashtag trans women are women. So our national institutions have just been almost unwittingly instruments because I think they just thought they were doing the right thing by equality law. Um, And setting up this chilled environment where employees who go, hang on a minute, how does that fit with what the Equality Act actually says? Shut up, you're transphobic, says the HR person. <laughs> you know, it's just nuts.
0: And, and, of course, then, you know, we get to your former union. And I think that that's, that's what I found the most shocking, and I assume this was the final straw for you. But tell us yeah. what happened and what you expected to happen and then what should have happened.
1: Well, so Sussex um, local branch of the University and Colleges College Union um, put out this statement, I don't know, about a week A week after the whole thing started. So at that point, I was just sort of hanging on. I was teaching from home. Um, This was after you saw the posters? I saw the posters. posters. There'd been a demonstration. I I basically was advised to stay at home for my own protection. The police were coming around. I'm getting, you know, like security stuff in my house, um, trying to think about the future and and thinking, well, I'll just have to stay off campus for the rest of the term at least, but I can teach on Zoom. Um, And so that was the situation. And then, I got word from someone who was involved in the UCU but was very embarrassed and said, I'm sorry, but there's a statement coming out um, tomorrow. And I could tell from the way she put it that I wasn't going to like it, but... um, Had you expected them to support you? Yeah. Or just stay silent? I mean, expect is a strong word, but maybe hope, because she just kind of always... Maybe I'm stupid and my wife is always... uh, saying, why do you keep expecting for better? (laughs) I do keep hoping that people will be more reasonable and decent than they actually turn out to be. But, um, yeah, it it was worse. The thing is, it was worse than I had expected. Give us the gist. The gist was this sort of pompous kind of peroration about standing with are trans and non-binary students against institutional transphobia. And all they could possibly mean by that is that I was there. Well, because Because there's nobody else there. Well, there's nobody else that says anything like what I say out loud. Plus, every second comms that comes out of the university is about trans and non-binary spaces in the library and trans and non-binary support groups and LGBT this. There's staff networks, there's a the Centre for Sexual dissidents, there's a the Centre for Gender Studies. I mean, it's literally saturated with positive messaging. Um, it's in Brighton, one of the most queer friendly places in the world. So all they could mean by institutional transphobia is we haven't shut that bitch up yet. So and, th- and anyway, it was all so it was absolutely framed in the classic rhetorical style to set up this op- opposition between these noble people, uh, self-appointed, self-identified noble people mm. um, and, and that which in the office, well, not in the office. So this came through on your email? Yeah, it came through in, on my email and it just felt like a punch in the gut. And um, I mean, this is a union. <laughs>
0: Tell me what the union,
1: for those viewers that aren't sure about this,
0: just explain what unions are set up
1: to do. (laughs) Well, I believe that unions are supposed to protect employees from their bosses and to offer solidarity with anyone who is an employee, um, especially, you'd think, in a university when they are being targeted for their academic research and their philosophical beliefs, also protected in law under the Equality Act. So you'd think on a number of levels Mm -hmm. I was covered. But what you wouldn't have realized is that from the top down of the UCU, including Joe Grady, the General Secretary, there is this culture of, yes, self-ID is absolutely brilliant. In fact, it goes further. So UCU central office have this document that's been circulating around, which says uh, something like, at UCU, we um, respect, the capacity of people to identify as women or as black or as disabled, it says. Now, I don't know what the hell they mean by identify as in that context because they surely can't mean you can identify as a different race or identify as disabled if you're
0: not. I'm just trying to imagine the kerfuffle on Sussex University campus if somebody wore
1: blackface and said they identify A white person wore blackface. Well, I mean... Uh, Yeah, it's it's inconceivable that that's what they could possibly mean. Whereas, of course, it's all fine if we identify as women, or men. You know, somehow there's supposed to be that distinction. But it is in this document. And and Joe Grady has said on several occasions, that she uses or used to use Turf Blocker, which is a, basically a blocking tool on Twitter that means she never has to see the likes of your tweets or my tweets. She admitted, mind you, that's quite nice for people not to have to see our <laughs> yeah, tweets. Exactly.
0: But seriously, she's admitted that. Oh yeah yeah, 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 I, yeah. I mean, that. no,
1: Joe Grady is is. Um, but I mean, she's not she's not unusual um, in academia. She mm. has these relatively extreme views, but they've become kind of the norm in that context, and it's all so moralized. It's like you know, it just relies on basically setting someone up as um as the kind of contrast class to you so they're virtuous we're evil basically i don't know it must be like tapping into all sorts of drives they're barely aware of
0: it's quite incredible isn't it because although obviously you know neither you or i are blanket free speech Mm -hmm. proponents that isn't where we're coming to with this debate definitely not where we want to end up you would really think that sussex would have protected an academic who's brought so much to the university i mean they should protect all of mm. uh, their staff but i mean you were given an obe in december 2020 mm-hmm. other buggers efforts as i call them and you you've obviously you know achieved huge amounts your students many of your
1: students love you um mm-hmm. As soon as you say that, somebody's going to go on Twitter and say I was a bitch, so I'm always a bit nervous. But I I get on okay with students, and I think quite a lot of them think I'm a good teacher. Sure. I mean, let's reframe that, and it might be that we don't want to leave it in,
0: but (laughs) you teach feminism Mm -hmm. as part of your your lecture series, and there are many young women and men Mm -hmm. at university that want to hear about different perspectives on feminism. They don't all want to hear the Alison Phipps type, faux feminism in my view.
1: Yeah, so I try and expose my students to all sorts of ideas and I tell them right at the beginning that they, I don't want them to agree with me for the sake of it. They've got to come up with their own ideas. And that is how it should be. And that is how it is in a lot of departments still. I don't think we should um, go along with the caricature that sometimes emerges of just a whole bunch of snowflakes. and mm. you know, not These people I've been talking about are a small number um, of hardcore kind of totalitarians, basically. But most of us are still trying to do our best. It's just that... um, I mean, another salient point is that most academics are not on social media because they're far too sensible and busy and they're just getting on... So they don't really know what's going on and they don't have a voice to kind of fight the totalitarians who are on Twitter constantly, massively narcissistic and totally enjoying themselves. But let's
0: let's go back even a little bit further than when you began writing about this. So just give us a kind of framing of what happened when Maria Miller, the who was then the Equalities Minister, or was she even Minister for Women? I she was remember. Women
1: and Equalities Minister, I think. So
0: what was the first thing that she did for women in her post?
1: Well, I don't know. Well, uh, I'll but. tell you then. <laughs> <laughs> it was... It was
0: to suggest self-identification. Oh, okay.
1: For for trans people. Well, she so she initiated, didn't she, the uh, the first gender recognition reform inquiry, mm-hmm. uh, where they had, I don't know, I think about fifteen expert witnesses, and nearly all of them were either trans or the parents of trans-identified children or worked for trans lobbying groups. There no were no feminist groups. There was no feminist groups, um, and in the final report, although lots of feminists. Uh, wrote in, uh, gave written evidence. Um, in the final report, they didn't really refer to any of it, I think. Certainly very little of it. So it was a total stitch up, mm. basically. And this was, I think, 2015? 2015. 2015, and they had people like um, Jess Bradley mm. as an expert witness. Jess Bradley being a, a what a trans woman um, student who worked with a Scottish... Uh, grassroots trans activist organisation calling for um, free hormones for everyone and an amnesty for all trans prisoners. Free hormones for (laughs) everyone? I wouldn't mind a bit of testosterone, (laughs) actually. I'm so tired. But it was classic sort of student activism stuff. And there Jess was giving evidence in Parliament about how society should be structured. And then after that, Jess Bradley got into quite a lot of trouble taking photos of um, their genitalia in the, the college library, and as I recall. Their male genitalia. Their male genitalia in the college library. So um, that goes to show the due diligence that was done on the, on the witnesses. There was another um, you know, perfectly fine trans woman student who was um, involved, I recall, who was a math student and worked for a student union and who was giving evidence on women's sport. I couldn't see any connection right. between their background and what they were giving evidence on. But nonetheless, there was Maria Miller and, and Co kind of diligently writing it all down or whatever. So, well, yes, next time, it was ridiculous. I mean, this
0: this was what led to the uh, the founding of Women's Place UK, yeah. wasn't it?
1: Yeah, because you feel like, what the hell is happening here? Our national institutions, which we just assume, well, some of us naively assume, are going to to work pretty Well, and or at least they're going to listen to a range of voices, and Hmm. they're going to come up with sensible, sensible conditions. But actually, the report um, that came out, as I recall, I'm trying to mix. I'm wondering if I'm mixing up my reports. But there was a series of kind of actions by the government or by the Women and Equality Select Committee back then, which basically waved through self ID and recommended Hmm. it. And I think Theresa May even gave a speech. Um, yes, she did. sort of supporting it. And it was all, you know, they just thought this is an easy win. There aren't any possible consequences here. They hadn't even thought about it. And it's free. It won't cost us any money. Yeah, exactly. And, it, you know, we'll and get those rid of the party. Well, I don't think they even thought those bitches would have said anything. Well, I those just bitches think...
0: weren't asked. <laughs> <laughs> So Here we are, six we seven are. years down <laughs> the road, uh, and look at the devastation.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it was to- that's the that is the tragedy that this did not have to be this way. Right? If Stonewall had taken a much more sensible line, saying yes to trans rights but no to self ID, we've got to be able to protect yes. trans people in another way legally. Um, if they had acknowledged that there was obviously a clash between. Mm women's rights and self-ID, and children's rights, then we wouldn't be where we are. are. But instead, they just said no debate. So in in
0: 2015, I visited Vancouver to do some research on the sex trade, of which I'm a big critic. People might know if they read unheard. And if you don't, why not? (laughs) And I was shown around the downtown east side in Vancouver, which is the poorest area in North America. And it's populated by women who are prostituted, in particular native women and heavy drug-using women and men. And the feminists had set up this great resource for girls and women to leave prostitution and to get the support that they they need. Mm. And it's also a daily kind of drop-in centre. And I was told, and in fact I was shown round this, what used to be a brilliant resource, and told that the women don't come anymore. The prostituted women do not come to the building anymore because it's full of actual men, Mm -hmm. just blokes, homeless blokes sitting there with their beards and, because it's a nicer um, resource than Mm -hmm. the homeless shelter down the road for them. Because Vancouver, of course, has self-ID. Now this might sound like an extreme example of what actually does happen when self-ID becomes law. But we have
1: to look at the end result, don't we? And that's why we're concerned about it as feminists. Yeah, I mean, any safeguarding policy or any kind of policy at all should probably always factor in the worst possible scenario and and sort of um, anticipate the worst aspects of human nature rather than the Mm. best. And actually what self-ID policies kind of trade on is a fantasy that uh, suddenly putting on a dress or saying I'm a woman will change your basic nature. And in fact, whatever was there before will be thereafter. Plus, of course, humans are humans. And if you you basically um, make it the case that you can self-identify into a better situation than you were in, i.e. a a woman's prison as opposed to a male prison, which are usually kind of um, less intense, aggressive places and with lower security in some cases, then some people will do it, Mm. you know, whether they're trans or not. um, That's just the way it is. And that's not a slur on every trans person, because Mm. as you and I both keep saying, uh, this isn't about every trans people, this trans person. This is nobody objects to all male. Well, nobody used to object to all males being kept kept out of changing rooms, even though only a few of them would have ever offended. It's a safeguarding policy. That's That's the whole bloody point. Yes. (laughs) And so um self i d policies just forget that we knew all that, and basically as I say like fantasize about people being really great and decent all the time and we can't we can't run society like that we just can't and you are where you are you've
0: resigned from your your post which which must have been terribly painful as well as a relief, i would imagine yeah 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 and Obviously, there's the future and anyone would be lucky to have you working with or for them. But tell me, if you could, about what this does on a personal level, because although that, you know, I I found that talking about this can make you appear to be vulnerable, Mm. but I think it's important, isn't it, to put it on the record about what it actually does and what they, I think, what they intend that uh, the consequences to be.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I struggle a bit with talking about how it makes me feel because, for one thing, as you know, every time you talk about how it makes you feel, there's this howl from the other side that you are weaponising mm-hmm. your tra- your alleged trauma. I mean, basically, it's just more of the same, you know, shame all the way down, you can't really be meaning it. Well, one of your former colleagues has said that white women who were raped are crying white tears, and somehow yeah. it's transformed white- to racist, so white cis woman's tears, blah blah blah, yeah, so and it's and it doesn't sit well with me anyway to to kind of expose my wounds <laughs> to the world, um and I don't intend to keep doing it. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm gonna sort of like give myself a mental cut off point but um but it is important you not know, because this is all very um symbolic and instructive, isn't it? It's not just what's happened to high profile cases like you and me. It's what's happening now in every institution, not just universities, to women who feel like they're choking. They cannot get their words out, or if they do get their words out, then they're being put through complaint systems, they're being socially ostracised, they They're having their bosses are taking them aside and telling them, you know, please, you know, we're watching your Twitter feed. There's just this surveillance at, um, environment now, or feeling of surveillance that is unacceptable. So that's why we have to talk about the human cost. We do,
0: and and actually, I mean, obviously we'll get... On to talking about your thoughts about the future of academia Mm -hmm. and, and in particular, feminism and and free thinking within universities, which I think was probably why they were set up. Anyway, (laughs) I was at a feminist conference a couple of weeks ago Mm -hmm. uh, with... There were over a 1,000 women, a few men there. There was a heavy focus on violence against women and girls and how to combat it, male violence. And we had to walk past pickets and... um, the usual blue fringes in their trans flags. I wrote about it for unheard uh, with gross vile signs. I think one of them was "Suck my dick, you transphobic cunt." to anti male violence feminists walking into a feminist conference, right. hearing about abuse of women all over the world, from India to East Africa and and everywhere else. And what was particularly well, everything was shocking. I mean, it was it was a surreal moment. Mm-hmm. But when I was doing my session, which focused on male violence, because that's who I am, the trans activists had found out which room I was in. And there was screaming, blow jobs are real jobs, because I'm against prostitution, outside the window, banging on the window as a woman from Eritrea was talking about being raped yeah. um, as a, uh, an asylum seeker. And I still can't actually believe this, but the dean, of a university where I had spoken at along with other feminists only a few weeks earlier, was in the crowd of trans activists, Mm -hmm. the Dean. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Right. So where do we go from here? What can be, what can be salvaged? How do we enable and embolden young academics and students to go forward and to protest this shit?
1: Well, what the dean of that institution or any other institution does on their days off has to be up to them, and if they uh, want to make uh, life choices like that, then you know, so be it. But what we can do is is um, pressure universities in to reducing the influence of lobbying groups in universities like Stonewall, and to insist on a norm that as managers, as deans, as vice chancellors, or you know, as sort of senior management, they do not make politically loaded Mm. um, pronouncements in controversial areas of public dispute. And that's not what we've seen um, in this area at all. You know, vice chancellors are attending Trans Day of Remembrance ceremonies. Of course, it might look to the sort of naive eye as if this is just an entirely innocent gesture. Um, How could it possibly be wrong? But first, they've been instructed to do it by Stonewall as part of their sort of aspirations to get into the top 100 employers or whatever and second you know in this particular case the list of names of murdered tragically murdered trans women they're reading out are most nearly all like 90 percent from south america and have nothing to do with the uk situation well and also if i may interject um murdered because uh, they were were prostitutes by violent men yes so, yes, there's a whole set of interesting, uh, well, like interesting, but, you know, academically important context there that needs to be looked at, yes. but it doesn't get looked at. It just gets pushed into this rhetorical kind of mush and then used to push for self-ID in this country. And that's the point, like, these are not innocent gestures. The flags on campuses, yeah. the, the, the participation in these quasi-religious ceremonies are not neutral, sort of nice, kind gestures. Of course, they're presented that way. They are political and managers should not be participating in them right? because how can a student or a junior person speak up about their worries about the whole context of Stonewall law if Stonewall is telling the manager mm-hmm. how to sort of perform it? it just, mm-hmm. It's it's terrible. So, so that's one thing we can do to kind of try and get back to a point. And then, of course, academics can argue for self-ID. They should be able to argue for self-ID, but it would be much more of a level playing field and people like me would be able to argue against it without worrying that, you know, worrying about the consequences. So what do you think will happen
0: going forward in the UK with Stonewall? I think they are the only lobby group. I mean, obviously, they've got their mouthpiece, Pink News, the <laughs> LGBTQQI two-spirit plus uh, so-called gay media. But, But how do you think we can really encourage more of those that are appalled by this to speak up. out, whatever their view is, yeah. on trans issues, on self-identification, to stop this bullying?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think, well, we're obviously having some success because I see more and more people speaking out. I think as the public becomes better educated about the the, the basic issues and our particular position, which is not as represented, um, and, and one thing that's happened recently that is good is that I think, although there's still um, work to be done, Guardian, BBC are no longer presenting our views as anti-trans or mm. transphobic, um, and do seem aware. At least some of them seem aware that there's actually a proper intellectual yeah. dispute here, and that they can't be, they can't just present it in a really one-sided way. So. That means that more and more people are becoming aware of it. Because I think, honestly I think Guardian readers hardly knew about any of the implications of self-ID. Um, they just were being protected from that information because it wasn't serving their business model very well. And every time they'd write anything even vaguely gender critical, they'd get absolutely hammered by the American readers who seem to make up a lot of their uh, revenue. So it's good that we're getting a more balanced picture of what's actually happening. Um, but there are, there's still work t- to be done there.
0: Thank you very much, Kathleen, for Thanks speaking to, to us today. And I know that you've got an even brighter future ahead. <laughs> Thank you, Julie.
1: <laughs> even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods